welcome Jordan Worley to preach this morning. Good morning. It is good to be with you all this morning. Um, I personally was very refreshed by the Pilgrim's Progress reading. Um, really quite wonderful. And um, I am not going to ask you to stand because we have some rather long readings this morning. And um, if you can, excuse my translation, it is the Legacy Standard Version. So instead of translating um, Yahweh as Lord, it just uses Yahweh. Um, so we will be reading this morning through um, 1 Kings chapter 18, and then we will also be reading through Romans chapter 11. So I will begin the reading of God's word. Now it happened after many days that the word of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, and he was over the household. Now Obadiah feared Yahweh greatly, and it happened that when Jezebel was cutting down the prophets of Yahweh, Obadiah took 100 prophets and hid them by fifties in the cave and sustained them with bread and water. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and all the valleys. Perhaps we will find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive and not have to cut down some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now it happened when Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he recognized him, and he fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? And he said to him, It is I. Go, say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, What sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? And Yahweh, as Yahweh your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent to search for you. And if they said, he is not here, and he made the kingdom or nation swear that he could not find you, and now you're saying, go to your master, behold, Elijah is here. And it will be that when you leave, I leave you, the spirit of Yahweh will carry you where I do not know. And I will come and tell Ahab, and he will not find you, and he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared Yahweh from my youth. Has, not, has it not been told to my master what he did when Jezebel killed the prophets of Yahweh, that I hid 100 prophets of Yahweh by fifties in a cave and sustained them with bread and water? So now you're saying, Go, say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Elijah said, As Yahweh of hosts lives, before whom I stand, 
I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you the troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's ha house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of Yahweh, and you have uh, followed the Baals. So, now, then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 shekel, prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah to eat at Jezebel's that who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab went and sent a message among all the sons of Israel to gather the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to the prophets, to all the people, and said, How long will you be limping between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. Is If Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him, him a word. So then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place the wood, but place no fire under it and I will prepare uh, the other ox and put it on the wood and I will place fire under it. I will not place fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered and said, This is a good word. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves, and prepare the first, for you are many, and call upon your na the name of your God, but place it place no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped about the altar which they had made. Now it happened at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or relieving himself, or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried out with a loud voice and gashed themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. Now it happened when noon had passed that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he said, repair the altar of Yahweh which has been pulled down. Then Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh had come, saying, Israel 
shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox into pieces and placed on the wood. And he said, fill your pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. Now it happened at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah's, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are the God in Israel, and that I am your slave, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Yahweh, answer me. That is, people may, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and know that you have turned you have turned their hearts back again then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench and all the people saw and fell on their faces and said Yahweh he is God Yahweh he is God then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of, tu the, of the tumult of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went on the top of Carmel, and he stretched himself over toward the ground and put his face between his knees. And he said to the, his young man, Go up now. Look toward the sea. So he went and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go back seven times. Now it happened at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as the man's hand is coming up from the sea and he said go and say to Ahab prepare your chariot and go down so that rain does not stop you now it happened that it was a little while after the sky drew, grew dark with clouds and the wind and there was heavy rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and, but the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab, where you enter Jezreel. Our New Testament reading this morning is Romans chapter 11. So if you could please turn there. I say then, has God rejected his people? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, 
a seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what does, what does the divine response say to him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In this way, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice has also come to be. But if it's by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? Has what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but has but the cho chosen obtained it, and the rest are hardened, just as it is written. God gave them up to a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, uh, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say, did the st they stumble so to fall? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if there was, now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? But am I speaking to you who are Gentiles? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance be but life from death, the dead. And if the first piece of dough is holy, then the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being the wild olive, were grafted in among them, and have become a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do not, but if you do boast against them, remember that you, it, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. You will say then, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. Then they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do continue in their unbelief, will be, do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in. For you, for if you were cut off 
what is by nature a olive tree and were grafted into a contrary to your nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of the mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so, and so all Israel will be saved, just as, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. And this, this is my covenant with them when I take them, take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now you've been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so also now you've been disobedient. So also, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may have now now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depths of his riches and the wisdom of knowledge of, the, of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that you have shown us mercy. We thank you that you have grafted us into the tree, to the tree of life, Lord. Even though we Gentiles are uncultivated branches, you have grafted us in graciously. And Father, we ask you this morning that you would lift us up, for you are the rock that is too high for us. May you be great in our sight once again. May we love you with all our hearts, all our minds, and all our strength once again. And so, Lord, we ask you as we consider this passage together from 1 Kings 18, that we would indeed listen, read, mark, and inwardly digest your word. Lord, we thank you, and we love you. May your spirit be upon us this morning, and upon me as I seek to give the word. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. There's no doubt in my mind that many of us have broken hearts, um, for indeed I do, with what happened last week in Israel with the terrorist attacks. And it has definitely changed my entire week. It has changed um, my whole schedule. Uh, I've been on the phone with acquaintances and 
with um, friends who are in Israel. Um, indeed, some of my our own church members at Dayspring have family in Israel. Thank God they're all safe. But this is a uh, tragedy that that has changed many people's lives this whole week, especially those of the Israeli peoples, both the Jews and Arabs that are Israeli citizens. It has also changed my week in this respect. Um, I received a call from a Presbyterian minister yesterday lamenting and grieving over the fact that anti-Semitism is once again on the rise in the church. This is um, due, no doubt, to many issues, and it's one I actually come to you with a very heavy heart with because it's something I've seen personally rising within the church. And it's not only grievous in my sight, but it is grievous in God's sight. In part, I think this is due to the fact that we have, as a church, not wanted to contemplate um, eschatology, and I'm not actually endorsing any mode of eschatology. There's been a total um, lack of engagement with it for the last 10 years, 20 years, since the young, restless, and reform movement started, which was purposely agnostic toward the question. And uh, it also uh, stems from without engaging that, that subject necessarily entails that you engage with the, the question of what is the Jewish nation's future? And this is something that Christians from all millennial backgrounds, post-millennial, all-millennial, pre-millennial, have contemplated and have answered and affirmed that God indeed has continuing promises to the Jewish people, and in many cases, both in respect to land and in respect to the people in their spiritual state, so both. However, much of church history has been marked by minimal contemplation of this, minimal consideration of this, and I'm not here to berate um, people that went before us. It's just simply the case. And, and so agreeing with Spurgeon, Spurgeon made this remark, and this is, the sermon represents just an attempt for us to think about this briefly together this morning to examine this issue. Spurgeon said this, I think we do not attach sufficient importance to the restoration of the Jews. We do not think enough of it. But certainly, if there's anything promised in the Bible, it is this. I agree with Spurgeon. We don't think of it often enough. And it is one of the key themes throughout the entire Bible that we so carefully as Gentiles have sought to neglect. And many of us uh, grew up in an era, I grew up in the tail end of it, but many of you grew up in the center of it, when uh, dispensational premillennialism was the primary teaching of the church in the United States, that is no longer the case. And it's not even an endorsement of that system, but we can be lulled into thinking that it was 
the main testimony of the church. The church's focus on Israel was always there, and that has not been the case, and tragically so. So this morning is really an attempt to show God's goodness, his kindness. Over the last five years, this very subject has brought me to love God more. It's one of those subjects that puts God on. It, it gives God glory. It raises God's goodness in our own sight. This is not a mere eschatological um, wonder. It is something that actually impinges on God's character, and it gives us confidence as Gentiles in the God of Israel. So, if that's not convincing enough, I will echo C.S. Lewis in his Learning in Wartime, a sermon that he gave in 1939. Good theology must exist if for no other reason than bad theology needs to be answered. And indeed, what we saw this past weekend was bad theology. And what we've seen this week is bad theology. It is bad theology of Islam that led to these attacks. It is the bad theology of what's called supersessionism, this non-contemplation of Israel or full-down derision toward any idea that the Jews have a promise that has led to so much of the anti-Semitism that we have seen within the church this past week. And I personally have, have witnessed this, um, not on Twitter. Personally, people have said awful things to me because they know my views on this. And so we seek to good, do good theology this morning. So this is the, the so as we approach um, this, this section of scripture, there are many things that are, would be great things to talk about, to teach about from this passage. It is, uh, 1 Kings 18 is wonderful. Even as I was reading it, I was seeing all these new connections I hadn't seen, and I've been studying this passage. And we could talk about God's supremacy over the gods, the false gods from this passage, or Elijah's dependency upon prayer and his dependency upon Yahweh, upon our Lord, or even God's grace displayed in giving a powerful sign to lead the Israelites to repentance, which is what he did in the Gospels. This is what he's done in many of our own lives. This is who God is. We could talk about all these things, and they would be wonderful things to talk about. But this morning, I want to talk about how this passage, and you could even see in our reading from Romans 11, how this passage connects to Israel's past and how it connects to Israel's future. However, before we get started, a bit of historical background is at least due to kind of set us in the right frame so we can understand what's going on in the passage. Elijah's ministry is taking place in this passage about six decades after Solomon's reign. 
This is um, Solomon was the last king of Israel to preside as king, to reign over Israel as one unified people. And Elijah steps in when a new dynastic competitor in the northern kingdom, after the split, um, steps in named Omri and then his, later his son Ahab, which we met in our reading today. What is actually quite notable about Ahab is he is a competitor to not only the the Davidic dynasty, but he introduces the competitor of Baal, or Baal worship, uh, back into Israel, which is an ancient um, historic sin of Israel throughout their whole history. And this came through uh, the marriage of, of his marriage to Jezebel, who was the, the daughter of Uthbal, the king of the Sidonians. And this was apparently done for ge- geopolitical reasons. So it wasn't done for any godly reasons. It was done because of a quick geopolitical win. This was actually very common in the Near East. It's actually very common in the European dynasties that we we're probably more familiar with throughout the centuries that to marry a marry someone from a different royal line was to bring continuity to the houses, those different royal houses. And it was a way of diplomacy. So one of the key aspects that may be missed on us in this reintroduction of Baal worship is that it was actually, Baal was seen as a competitor. I've had to read through um, competitor to uh, Yahweh. So not only is Ahab a competitor to the Davidic line, the Davidic dynasty, but Baal is a competitor to Yahweh in being able to supply rain. I've had to read through some of the dedications to Baal, hymns written to Baal um, for my master's degree program. And it's very fascinating because he is seen as someone that can bring rain. And this is why the Israelites are partly attracted to him. However, as we see in this chapter, uh, Yahweh has, the Lord has withheld rain. And this is actually due to uh, that he promises he'll do this if they go chase after other gods. And that's precisely what he does in this chapter. And so, really, this whole chapter is framed in who is the true God and who is the true king of Israel. And is Israel actually one people, or is it legitimate for them to be separated? So, with that background and context in mind, we'll focus down really on two verses, and to be honest, really one verse and you'll see why I'm doing that as we go along. So the two verses we'll be focusing on this morning is 31 through 32, and I'll read those again just to refresh our minds. Then Elijah took 12 stones according to the numbers of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh and made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of rain. So you're saying, okay, 
I think I get this. You know, there's, uh, he put 12 stones up, he makes the, the altar in the name of Yahweh, and he, it looks like he quotes something. And so th our temptation is actually to move along and get on with our reading. However, one of the key features of the Hebrew Bible and scripture more broadly speaking, so that this would include the New Testament, but the Hebrew Bible is where you see this most prominently in a defining element of the Hebrew Bible is its use of allusions and interbiblical quotes to augment, uh, to augment its message, to deepen its message, to provide depth. Actually, one scholar has even went as far as saying like that is actually the mastery and the beauty of that is if you can tie in many allusions, it would be considered in the biblical world more virtuous, more uh, the terser that you can make it, the more compact you can make it, and then packing all these illusions in a coherent manner is actually a, a virtue of Hebrew literature. It would be considered literary excellence, which is very different than our own conception of literary excellence that talks about, gives us lots of details that, the, that things were, you know, descriptions about people and places and a lot of background information. When we read our Bibles, it's very terse, very compact, and it, the narrative just moves along However, what this allows for is actually this interconnection and interweb uh, interconnectedness of the whole scriptures. And so when it says Elijah took 12 stones according to the numbers of the tribes of Jacob and to whom the word of Yahweh came saying Israel shall be his name is actually saying far, far more than just that. So, in sum, what is, I think, quite amazing is that the Bible weaves this great tapestry where no thread is actually insignificant. It's not superfluous. And this is the key here. So, one of the things is, it becomes rather apparent that what Elijah is doing is he is building the altar with 12 stones, and you're like, oh, okay, I got it. But the author of Kings invites us to actually ask a deeper question, which is, wait a minute, where have I seen 12 stones before? Maybe you guys are thinking. I think the first thing that would come to mind is the breastplate of Aaron, or the priestly breastplate. That's um, sometimes what this is called. And this is a, and that would be correct. But there's actually relatively few places that 12 stones are actually mentioned. Um, breastplate of Aaron's one in Exodus, the memorial that God commands Joshua to do when they cross the Jordan, and when the waters split, he makes a memorial of 12 stones that the Israelites are supposed to come back to and say, why are these 12 stones? And then they tell him about crossing the Jordan and Yahweh's faithfulness to them, the passage that we read this morning, and the 12 stones in the book of Revelation, which represent the 12 apostles who Jesus calls the judges of Israel, the judges of the 12 tribes. And so what we see here developing is that even this is a, a striking repudiation of Ahab 
and his fake dynasty, his illegitimate dynasty, and saying, no, you guys may, in geopolitical terms, be two nations with two different kings, but in my eyes, in God's eyes, you are one people. Israel is not the two tribes or the ten tribes. Israel is the twelve tribes. And Israel is not merely is not 13 tribes it is the 12 tribes and so what elijah is doing in this building the altar of the 12 stones is he is actually showing that israel is one people one people created by god for god's service and god's mission and that even with their sin they don't cease being one nation in his sight and on the next level, the plot actually thickens when we consider altars. Now, this may seem a little bit ridiculous. You could say, well, Israelite religion was based on sacrifice. Like, why would I look for altars anywhere else? It's going to be everywhere. Interestingly, in a in very interesting fashion, similar to the 12 stones, there's actually one other place that an altar was actually built because of Baal worship, and that is in Judges 6 with Gideon. And so you see here that when you go back, you see Israel falling into the same sin over and over and over again. They fall into the sin of Baal worship, seeking after gods, which is the first of the Ten Commandments, And so he is, uh, so they are going there and it asks us, the author is begging us to ask, is God going to be faithful to his people again? They have broken his law again. That is what the author is asking us. That's what we should be asking us. We should be asking ourselves. And the answer is yes. They didn't even ask him to be faithful. We read in Deuteronomy 30 that he will let them be in the land when he circumcises their hearts and they can stay in the land and dwell there, but, um, and, so, and they, are, they follow his commandments. And so we think that in our heads that God will only be faithful on a quid pro quo basis with Israel. But he shows us in this very passage that they didn't even ask for him. They didn't want him. They were pretty fine doing their Baal worship and, you know, um, you know, getting on pretty well with their lives beside the drought that Yahweh sent. But they weren't asking for him even when the drought came. And he sends Elijah. And Elijah comes on behalf of Yahweh and behalf of his people Israel. to intercede for them once again. And God graciously answers the prayer of one man, Elijah. He licks up the Yahweh, take, accepts the offer, and sends rain, despite Israel not asking for him, despite Israel's sin of idolatry, despite sin, Israel's sin of breaking into two nations and the 
a tacit rejection of the Davidic covenant of which God established. And so, just like God did with Gideon, God did with Elijah, and again showed the Israelites grace. But I think this is a, this kind of leaves us, like, why? Why does God do this? I'm going to pause here and ask you a question. What is your favorite attribute of God? Is it his faithfulness? Is it his kindness? Is it his holiness, like R.C. Sproul held to? My favorite attribute of God is his weirdness. I know that doesn't go under the typical systematic theology. You're not going to find it in... uh, in any systematic theology, so don't go home and consult your Wayne Grudem volumes and say, oh, where's the weirdness of God? What is Jordan speaking of? What I mean by this is it's his unexpectedness, his unexpected kindness. He's always doing things that blow our minds. And just to kind of illustrate the unexpected is that God took on flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus, truly man and truly God. And it's hard not to see the kind of comical weirdness, the comical unexpectedness of God, that when he was creating the earth, he creates a donkey with its cute little ears and says, that's what I'm going to ride into Jerusalem. You know, (laughs) it's just... That's the weirdness, that God rode a donkey. He's always shocking us, always doing wonderful things. But more importantly, he's not like us. We are fickle. Somebody betrays us, we're done with them. Somebody dishonors us, we expel them. We don't want them in our lives anymore. But God is not that way. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so, when we ask, but why does God do this? The second half of the verse really answers that question. Um, He does it because it's actually a quotation that, sorry, I even lost my place in my notes. Uh, (laughs) It is a quotation from Genesis 35. It is God reaffirming his covenant promises to Jacob and changing his name to Israel. And so I'll read this for us so we can contemplate this and we'll know um, exactly why God is doing this. He says, Thus he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am the God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and assembly of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from your loins, and the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give you the land to your seed after you. So 
God here is not only reaffirming his covenant promises to Abraham and Isaac, but he's also actually narrowing down the land promises because we say a nation and an assembly of nations, it's kind of odd. Well, the only nation to come from Jacob is Jacob's 12 sons, which is Israel. And he says there that that will be the seed that inherits the land. The assembly of nations, God, Jesus clarifies, he gives, illuminates to us when he says in Matthew that many from the east and the west will recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are that assembly of nations that God has created from the nations. But we are not Israel. Israel takes a unique spot in God's plans, even in their failures. They serve their mission as a people is to be a sign people for God, whether they're faithful or unfaithful. They are, their mission is to put God's mercy on display and to show his patience that we, the nations, may look at him and say, this is a great God who keeps his promises. And what Elijah is doing there with building the altar, he's reminding Israel of their calling, that they're called to be faithful to God. He's also reminding them that even when they're unfaithful, God is faithful to them because he called them to be his sign people. And Elijah, like the woman, or like Jesus when he's talking at the woman of the well, knew that salvation comes from the Jews. And bear in mind, when Jesus says that, he doesn't mean only the Messiah comes from the Jews. And the Jews merely served as a womb for the Messiah. It is that what Paul says is that what will their full acceptance mean but life from the dead? That the Jewish people quite literally will, with their Messiah, bring salvation to the nations. And so Elijah here is reminding them of their calling. That they are one people that God has made that he can bless them and love them God calls Abraham his friend and that they are to make God known and they will make God known even if they are unfaithful indeed that is both the wonder and burden that the Jews carry I have had many Jewish colleagues over time, and no matter how secular they are, they still remember they're Jews, and they try to escape it, but they can't. And this is actually a calling that God has put on them as a people, and Elijah is reminding them of that. And so, in this last part, this text doesn't only show God's faithfulness to Israel in the past, so going 
talked about judges. We talked about, touched on the exodus, talking about the breastplate of Aaron, which necessitates the exodus, or the promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it also points to the future because the Bible, the scriptures, actually are pretty preoccupied with this idea of the 12 tribes all the way through. And so we'll just take a short survey of it, give us a bit of a taste of what the Bible, how the Bible develops this. Isaiah and Ezekiel foresee a day when all 12 tribes will be reunified under eschatological King David and in the land of their fathers, despite the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. The Lord tells Jeremiah that Israel will not cease to be a people before him, a nation before him, unless that the sun and stars go away. Keep in mind, this is after the Babylonian captivity. So none of this ten lost tribes nonsense did God ever believe. Neither did Jeremiah, by the way. And when we, and Jesus said, so as we go into the New Testament, not only do the latter prophets talk about this, it's a very popular view that somehow um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah were only talking about the Babylonian captivity, but Jesus clears this up and says, no, the, tw- the 12 tribes will be scattered across the earth. This is in, uh, uh, will be scattered across the earth because of their unbelief. Jesus says in Luke 21, 24, Israel will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations. This is directly an allusion to Deuteronomy 32 and Deuteronomy 4 about the scattering due to unfaithfulness, which there's nothing more unfaithful than not receiving the Messiah that God's promised you. But Jesus also reflects Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 30 in saying that they will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled down underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Until implies that they will not be scattered any longer, but they will return to their home land, they will return to their capital of Jerusalem. And then Jesus promises the 12 disciples that they will be judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. If you ever wanted a fun activity, go into almost any commentary on Matthew. R.T. France, for example, and they will try to explain this away in the most absurd ways. And this is so clear because it's not only, Jesus doesn't only tell them that twice, it's not only given to us twice in Matthew and Luke, but also in, uh, in Acts. Think about when Judas had to be replaced. They were very insistent that they had 12. Not 13, not 11. It wasn't, oh, we lost Judas. I guess there's only 11 amigos now. No, they need it 12 because they need it to fulfill Jesus' commission to the disciples to have 12 disciples judge Israel. And so this whole, this whole 
occupation, preoccupation of Israel continues throughout the rest of Scripture. And it's one that we should actually consider today. And finally, as we read, there is a day that all Israel will be saved. And even Jesus testifies to this just as Paul did, because he reminds the Jews that they will not see him again until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there is a day coming when the Jewish people will come and meet their Messiah and know their Messiah. And they will know God's goodness. They will know that it was them who failed. But God is merciful. He never gave up on them. However, given our current climate and our current kind of agnosticism and skepticism about anything to do with Israel, I'm going to go through a few objections I received. These are not super powerful objections, but they are the ones I get in conversation at seminary almost all the time. And you think seminarians would have better objections, um, but they don't. Um, I feel, quite frankly, I make up better objections to my own views. So are you saying that the Jews still have land promises? Yes, I am. I am saying that. If God fulfilled the promises to make a nation, and he fulfilled the promises to make a multitude of nations, I don't understand how the land's not included in that. Obviously, there's more that we could go into, but a pretty straightforward reading of Scripture, and by the way, not even being overly literalistic would get you there. And I, I will kind of illustrate that point later. Um, not to mention the land promises and return were reiterated through much of the Bible. And you may further pursue me with that and say, but isn't it just your view, isn't your view just something that emerged in the 1800s? Or isn't this a pe peculiar doctrine that was taught by fundamentalists and literalists and Neanderthals? Or it can't uh, and or isn't it only a disp dispensational view? These are all kind of species of the same question, but with their own different nuances. Each one of the accusations, though, here is false and demonstrably false. Many of the Puritans and Dutch Reformed held to a restoration view of the Jews to both restoration spiritually and restoration physically to the land of Israel. This has been well documented. Um, Ian Murray's book, The Puritan Hope, is a wonderful resource if you wanted to consult that. And perhaps more interesting, you know, so it's actually interesting how the goalposts move so often on this discussion. Oh, well, yeah, sure, the Puritans believed it, but did anybody else believe it? And interestingly, uh, this is actually a fairly common belief, not in every detail. So I don't want to pretend that uh, these men, these theologians, were something that they weren't. But this is a problem, pretty common understanding amongst many people before 800 AD, many theologians, 
that the Jews would actually be, that the Antichrist would come from the Jews, then the Antichrist would deceive the Jews into rebuilding their temple, which actually tacitly assumes that they have to be in Israel to rebuild their temple and have some sort of control, which is they did not have. And so um, this view was held by Andrew of Caesarea, Pseudo Ephraim, St. John of Damascus, the Venerable Bede, not insignificant figures in, in early, earlier church history. Now, if we take the question, don't only fundamentalists and dispensationalists hold this view? Let me respond with a list of theologians, and there's more than this. This is just a handful, but I want to show you that almost every sector of the Christian church believes this, uh, has at least some people that believe this. I'm not saying this is the dominant view. Wilhelmus Abrakel, Dutch Reforms theologian from the 1600s. Jonathan Edwards, a Congregationalist preacher that we're all probably familiar with. J.C. Ryle, 1800s, an Anglican. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist, again, 1800s. Revere Widener, 1800s, a Lutheran. David Torrance, a contemporary theologian who's a Presbyterian. Eusebius Stefanu, a contemporary theologian who's Greek Orthodox. And Ralph Martin, who's a Roman Catholic. And by the way, the last two ones, these are traditions that we have significant disagreements with, and we say that they're deadly disagreements. And more, more importantly for our topic this morning, this is a tr these are traditions that have tr traditionally have not seen a place for Israel. And even they're saying, well, wait a minute, when we go back and do our own study of the issue, this seems significant. And actually, I'm going to quote from Martin in the next question. Do you believe that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of God's promises? To this end, I would agree with Ralph Martin, the Roman Catholic theologian whom I mentioned above when he states, quote, it is certainly significant that the Jewish people are back in the Holy Land and since 1947 reconstituted as a nation for the first time since their destruction of Jerusalem since the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and their own dispersal predicted by Jesus as a sign of God's judgment for rejecting him. It is also significant that since 1967, Jerusalem has been under their control. This is in his book, Is Jesus Coming Soon? A Catholic Perspective on the Second Coming. I would agree with that. It's significant. Is it a fulfillment? I would tend to believe so. You know, there could be, I could be wrong on this, and even if they were dispersed again, I have confidence in God's promises that he would regather them. But I do believe it's significant for two reasons, primarily. All throughout the scriptures, their return to the land, Ezekiel 36 being one of them, is seen to be a sign to the nations that Yahweh is God. And Paul tells us, that when he's speaking to the philosophers at the Areopagus, Paul tells us in Acts 17, Acts 17, 26, that God made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth, and he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So there was a statement uh, done by the faculty of Knox Seminary a number of years ago and they said, we believe God's sovereign. 
but we don't think the modern state of Israel has any biblical significance. Seems quite odd in the face of Paul's statement that God has made the times and seasons, has determined the appointed times and boundaries of every nation's habitation that the Jewish people are back in. You know, people claim that the Jews um, have mastery over, you know, finance industry and the world and the there's, there's secret Jewish cabal. Cabal, That's going to be a pretty big caper to pull off, even for the Jews, if that's all true, to hoodwink God into putting them back into their land. And so just the last two things. Why is this important? It's important because it's important in God's eyes. It is promises that God's made. It's important because it, impinge, it, it, it affects how we view God. Does God actually consider Abraham a friend? Does God actually keep his promises? Or does he just change the game up when he sends his Messiah and say, ah, I know I said this and this is, I led you guys to believe this. But... Um, None of it's true. It's all been absorbed in Jesus, all the promises. This is actually something that someone at Westminster Seminary has said. They said, oh yeah, if you read the Old Testament, it looks like the Jews will have restoration in the land, but Jesus changes all that, and that's no longer true. Okay, so could he change the game again? I mean, I don't mean to be rude about it, but that seems very suspicious to me that he would lead a people to this. It actually seems sick. You go to the synagogue today, and their prayer is for the re- that God would restore them back to the land. Their hope is for the Messiah to come. So that God would play a joke on the people and say, oh, well, because you rejected Jesus. Yeah, there's no more land promises, but I'm going to eternally make you think that there are. This matters on how we view God. And lastly, if that's not a big deal to you, there's a warning. Paul tells us not to be haughty as the nations. He tells us to consider what we think about Israel. Because if he did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So what do we do with all this? Simply, we give God praise. Psalm 117 is really wonderful to this end. Um, And I'll just read it out loud. It was a paradigm-changing psalm for me. And um, I'll just read it for you guys this morning. We give God praise. Sorry. Such a short psalm. Two verses. Praise Yahweh, all you nations. Laud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness prevails over us, and the truth of Yahweh is everlasting. Praise Yah. Who are the nations? 
that is us. And we're to give God praise because of his faithfulness to his loving, loving kindness prevails over us, Israel. Who's singing this in the temple in the original context? It is the nation of Israel. And the nations are to give God praise because he is faithful to Israel. And the truth of our Lord is everlasting. Secondly, like Elijah, let's believe God's word. Believe that God still has promises, that God is faithful. That is what Elijah does. He acts upon those very promises because he knew God. And we who know Messiah, we who knew God, should trust his word in every aspect, not just in respect to Israel, every aspect of it. And when we don't understand it and we doubt it, we, gracious, we ask God to be gracious to us and to preserve us and to help us understand it. There are many intellectual struggles I've had as a Christian. There are many conundrums I see in the word of God. But I've come to know God and trust him. I've come primarily to a person who has made the Bible trustworthy to me. And so I ask you guys to believe God's word The other ones, the other ones are really pray. Pray like Elijah did to once again powerfully act among Israel, even if they don't ask for it, or even if they ask for it in the wrong ways. Ask God to powerfully be present among the Jewish people today. We should pray for Christians in Israel right now that God would protect them and make, and they would make His name known to all the peoples there, the Israelis the Palestinian, the Israeli Arabs, the Israeli Jews, and all those who visit, that they would powerfully make his name known and God would protect them. We should pray for the Palestinians. Our Lord teaches us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. The Palestinians are no exception. And our fold is to prayer. God saved them. God, wake them up. Release them from their hatred. And release, there's plenty of Israel, Israelis that have hatred too. Release them from their hatred. And let Jesus be known to them. But Lord, if it is not your will, if they refuse to come to you, get rid of them destroy them. Destroy the enemies of your church and destroy the enemies of your chosen nation. And lastly, we act. And I'm not saying this in generic terms, I'm saying this in real terms. I called up the rabbi from my Jewish community, a community that I'm in contact with semi-frequently, less so these days than I have earlier this year. And he was moved and overwhelmed by the fact that, that I even called. And I wanted to take care of his 
family if you needed had any needs there was any needs that they had that I wanted to help and he told me that it was nice to know that he wasn't alone that they as a people aren't alone so we should be we should act Elijah acted built the altar prayed to God trust in God um Let's act in protecting our Jewish community. Let's be diligent in the study of our Bibles. Let's know God more. Pray that God opens up his word to you. And support God causes to the, for the gospel among the Jewish people and among the Palestinians in Israel. Only the Prince of Peace can bring the peace that we so desperately want. And our hearts so desperately cry out for. Whether we think about the war in Ukraine, we think about the violence in our own streets in the United States, and we think about this most horrific event that happened last weekend, we will never be satisfied until the Prince of Peace comes and brings the times of refreshing. But until then, we will have trial, we will have hardship until he comes and wipes away all our tears and all the tears of the Jewish people. So, as I close today, this is not to berate anybody, it's not to browbeat anybody, but it is a serious message for serious times. May God help us all. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we come to you and we pray that you would be present in our lives, that we would come to love you more, that we would come to enjoy you more we would you would be great in our eyes and lord we thank you towards your promises your promise keeping toward the jewish people despite them often and continually limping between two opinions lord how often do we limp between two opinions lord so father we pray for their redemption we pray that messiah would be known to them we pray for our hearts, that you would guard our hearts against hatred. You would guard our hearts against hating our enemies and hating the enemies of the Jewish people. That you would guard our hearts against hating Palestinians, against hating Jews, that you, in hating any one of our enemies, Lord. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We need you to act powerfully in our life, that we may be beacons of grace, to this world that is ever so dark. And Father, we come to you and we pray for Israel. We pray for the IDF forces. We pray that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob may give them favor to trample over their foes. And we pray for their foes, that their foes would not be able to withstand their fury. And Father, we also pray for their foes, that their foes would come to know your Son and 
to surrender themselves in peace. And lastly, Father, we pray that you would forgive us of all our sins. You are an ever-merciful God, and we praise you for it. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.